This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, Wall Street Journal columnist Jason Riley on the life and career of economist Thomas Sowell. His book is called Maverick, a biography of Thomas Sowell. He's interviewed by nationally syndicated talk show host, Dennis Prager. Jason Riley, it's a pleasure to be with you. We uh, we have been together on my radio show. You have made an, a number of PragerU videos, and I read you in the Wall Street Journal. You're pretty ubiquitous in my life. I just want you to know that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Good. You have done a service to the intellectual life of America by writing a biography of Thomas Sowell. And I'll begin in an odd way. How do you explain, I think I know the answer, nevertheless, I want your answer. How do you explain that one of the finest minds of the last half century is unknown to half America? <laughs> well, um, I guess to use today's parlance, uh, Thomas Sowell was canceled. He was canceled a long time ago. Um, uh, he's a conservative. Uh, he's a black conservative. Um, and uh, way back in the, in the 1970s, when he began writing about racial controversies, um, he got in trouble with a lot of his fellow intellectuals in the academy uh, and in the media. And he's never really shook that. I think it's something that has cost him professionally in terms of notoriety. And it's probably the main reason uh, a lot of people today know names like Ta-Nehisi Coates or Nicole Hannah-Jones or, or, or Ibram Kendi or Cornell West, uh, but, not, but not Thomas Sowell, not, not, notwithstanding the fact that, um, you know, he's written, he's really written circles around those folks, uh, maybe all of them combined. Uh, <laughs> And not, and not only in terms of the breadth of, of his work, but also the rigor of his, of his analysis, I think, is really unmatched by, by those folks. Yet they, they, they remain much better known than, than Thomas Sowell, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book. God, it's a, it's a truly important book. Was anything surprising in your research? Well, I would followed uh, Sowell's career for, for quite a while. And uh, I've been uh, trying to get him to cooperate with me in writing this book for, for a long time as well. And I'd interviewed him o over the years a number of times and, and got to know him a little bit. Um, so so not, not too much, not too much surprised me. Um, I guess one thing that, um, that might surprise a lot of people, though, is what a late start Sol got in, mm -hmm. in his professional life. Uh, this is someone who did not graduate from college until the age of 28. He was a high school dropout and did not write his first book until he was 40. And when you think about how prolific he's been, it's quite amazing uh, just how late a start he got in, in terms of his uh, career. 
So let's go to his beginnings. Again, uh, folks, we're talking about Thomas Sowell, in my opinion, as I said earlier, one of the greatest thinkers, period, not just one of the greatest economists, one of the greatest social thinkers and, and courageous. You have to be both, by the way. You can't be great without courage uh, in the last half century. By the way, before we go to, I want to go to his childhood uh, for a moment, but uh, it, it is it, it is fair, I think, for me to say he's not at all just an economist. Oh, no, no. Tom is a social theorist, a historian, sociologist, uh, and an economist. Uh, he's um, dabbled in any number of fields. It's, it's often uh, got him in trouble with people who specialize, <laughs> who uh, get very protective of their turf sometimes. But uh, uh, the writer Mark Mark Halpern has called Thomas Sowell one of the great trespassers uh, among our, our intellectuals. But, but his, um, his first discipline, uh, what he was schooled in, uh, is economics and, and economic history, the history of economic thought and the history of ideas. So a brief synopsis of his childhood. Well, he was born in, the, in, in, in 1930 in, in uh, North Carolina, outside of Charlotte. Uh, and spent almost the first decade of his life there. He was orphaned uh, as a child. His father died before he was born, and his mother died giving birth to a, a younger sibling a few wow. years later. So he never knew his parents. And he was taken in by a great aunt who, uh, and, her, and her two adult daughters, uh, one of whom was married. And so the four of them, when Tom was about nine years old, moved uh, up to Harlem in New York City, where he was raised. Um, and uh, as I mentioned earlier, he was a high school dropout. He was a very smart kid, but uh, had somewhat of a tumultuous home life and uh, ended up uh, dropping out of high school and then leaving home at the age of 17. Um, eventually, he was drafted into the Marines during the Korean War and, um, and spent two years in the Marines. And I think he sort of uh, got his act together there, learned some discipline, also picked up photography, uh, which became a lifelong uh, love of his. Um, and on the GI Bill, uh, with money from the GI Bill, he was able to enroll in college, first at Howard University, black school in Washington, D.C., and then he transferred to Harvard, where he eventually got his undergraduate degree. And from there, he went on to first to Columbia for a master's in economics, and then on to the University of Chicago, where he studied under Milton Friedman and received his Ph.D. And then he spent uh, most of the 60s and the 70s teaching. Uh, various schools, um, Amherst, Brandeis, uh, UCLA, and Cornell. Um, and then in 1980, he joined the Hoover Institution, which is at Stanford University, and that's where he's been ever since. If, if, he, if there were no Hoover Institution, would a mainstream university have hired him? <laughs> um, Tom could have worked at, at, at any college, any university he wanted to. This is a man who he turned down offers from places like Dartmouth, uh, uh, University of Wisconsin. Uh, he, he could have uh, gotten tenure and worked at any economics department in the country. It's, it's quite clear. He was a quite talented uh, scholar um, in his discipline before he ever began writing about uh, uh, racial controversies and so forth. Um, just the number of academic publications and, and so forth, which just surpassed most people in, in the field. Um, what what Tom ran into trouble with was the faculty lounge. Uh, the is 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 the, the the college administrators who wanted to interfere with his teaching style and so forth. And I think part of the problem was this was the 1960s, uh, Dennis, and 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 higher education was changing. Uh, 
you had a, a women's rights movement, a gay rights movement, an anti-war movement. Uh, uh, all these things were coming together. College campuses were being used as platforms for this sort of thing. And Tom was uh, of a different generation. I think he uh, intended to teach the way he was taught. And, and that was hard starting in the 1960s, that became very, very difficult to do. Uh, the, the professors and the administrators were encouraged to be much more indulgent than anything Tom had experienced, and he just would not bend. And so it, 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 I think it reached ahead for him at Cornell in the late 60s. He was there for the student protest. He was on, uh, on, on, on the faculty at the time, and I think that might have been the breaking point for him. And he, he stuck it out through the 70s. He sort of had one foot in the think tank world already throughout most of the 70s. But uh, he eventually, by the end of the 70s, decided to, to leave teaching altogether. But his first love had been classroom teaching, not even research. He wanted to be a teacher. Well, I was probably a great teacher. By the way, I was thinking, when you talked about his childhood, did he have a father figure? It's interesting. He... Um, uh, he had, uh, yes, one of his, uh, uh, the, the great aunt that, that raised him had two daughters, one of whom was married. And, and that man was something of a father figure. But when Tom talks about that experience, it's not just that he had uh, uh, a father figure. It's that he was essentially uh, an only child raised by four adults. And he talks about how important that was uh, in his uh, child development. Um, and I mean, we know through studies on, you know, how well firstborn child does or only children do. He says, I was lucky enough to be raised by four adults. And he says that probably had more impact on how I turned out than anything else that's ever happened to me in my life. You know, I'm just thinking, I wonder if that's a relatively ignored field People talk about the influences in childhood. And I wonder if the fact that kids today spend more time with kids rather than adults than perhaps in recorded history. And I wonder if that's having an immaturing impact on thought and personality. I'm just freely associating here based on what you said. It, it, it might. It might. Um, I, I'm not uh, too familiar with, with that literature, but we do know that a lot of these uh, gaps, these academic achievement gaps that, we, um, that we, we're still dealing with and, and constantly trying to close do begin even before the children enter, enter school. I mean, we know the sort of words per hour uh, studies that have been done and, and, and you break those down by income level and so forth, children on welfare, children on, on uh, working class, of working class parents, children, professional parents, huge, huge disparities, not only in the number of words, but in the um, how many negative words versus positive words a child mm. hears can, can be uh, uh, quite different depending on, on um, uh, the socioeconomic background of the, of the, of the, of the, um, of the family. But the, in Tom's case, and at this time, um, you know, the, the, the black family was in much better shape than mm. it is today. Um, you know, intact families were the norm in the black community back then. You know, in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, 
uh, black marriage rates were higher than white marriage rates in this country. So a lot of what we see today is really more of a legacy of, of the 1960s than yeah. a legacy of Jim Crow or slavery as it's often attributed to. Try to say that on a college campus today. <laughs> oh my God. It, it has the detriment. Or I mean, deep- like Tom grew up in Harlem, but Harlem was not this violent uh, that's neighborhood right. with gunfire. And, 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 and it, it wasn't that, that, that's, you know, people, people, a lot of people don't understand that Harlem was not, you know, uh, what it, what it became later. Um, and, and so he, Tom might've grown up in, in Harlem, but it was a very different place back then. Also, is it fair to say, and, and feel totally free to, to say it's not fair to say, but, uh, I think that most Americans today, black and white, have a picture of black life prior to the 60s as utter servitude, humiliation, non-achievement, you know, uh, which is such a distorted picture. Obviously, there was the evil of Jim Crow. We all understand that. But, you know, Jesse Owens was an American hero in 1932 or 36. I don't remember which Olympics it was in Berlin. When to to Hitler's great chagrin, it was a black runner who beat all of his Aryan runners. Uh, people don't know that, though, do they? They they don't. And Tom has spent uh, quite a bit of time writing about this period in Black history that's often overlooked. What was going on uh, between the end of slavery, uh, through Reconstruction, through the Jim Crow era, and and before the modern day civil rights movement. And he's charted the the progress that was being made. And it was remarkable progress. You saw gaps closing, income gaps closing. Um, The the poverty rate, for example, in America for blacks fell by 40 percentage points between 1940 and 1960. That's before a civil rights act, before a voting rights act. You had blacks entering the skilled professions, middle-class professions, social workers, uh, teachers, doctors, lawyers, accountants, uh, that the number of them quadrupled between 1930 and 1970. That's before affirmative action. And you're right, this period is, is, is not discussed uh, or not discussed to the extent that it should be. And I think that's because it really interferes with the prevailing narrative, which is that uh, what we see, these outcomes we see today among low-income Blacks is a legacy of slavery and a legacy of Jim Crow. If you point out to them that, that, that Blacks were progressing at a much faster rate in generations much closer to slavery and Jim Crow than they are today, it really interferes with that narrative that, that, uh, that the, the left often pushes and that the Democrats often push. So again, please tell me if this is a, a, a wrong read in your opinion, but one of the, if not the central motto of a conservative is, please leave me alone. That's basically what we want, is to be left alone. We would like to make our own life, make our own mistakes, fall on our faces, pick ourselves up. Is it, is it at all fair to say that had, in effect, Blacks been left alone? With no, no Jim Crow, that's not being left alone. And right. no, we'll help you immensely would that have been better well i don't i don't even think it's a it's a theoretical question it's something that could be answered uh, empirically by looking at trends among blacks at a period of time when the government uh excuse my french didn't give a damn what was happening to black people 
Uh, and, and to the extent that the government was uh, involved, it was an oppressor. And, and if you look again at the progress being made among Blacks in terms of income and joining skilled professions, educational attainment, not only in absolute terms, but relative to whites, if you look at these trend lines, you see tremendous progress in the first half of the 20th century. And then when the great welfare state expansions of the 1960s come along with the Great Society and so forth, well-intentioned, but if you chart this progress that was going on among Blacks, at that point, all of these things either slow, stall, or start to reverse course. You know, just to give you a quick statistic, you know, violent crime among Blacks today is something, of course, that is, that is front page uh, news. Um, it was declining in the first half of the 20th century. In the 1940s, it fell by 18%. And in the 1950s, it fell by another 21%, all the while remaining relatively flat among whites. And this was particularly remarkable because this was the time uh, that a lot of blacks were moving from rural settings to urban settings where you typically find more violence. Yet the violent crime rate among blacks, homicides and so forth, was falling dramatically. All of this starts to reverse course beginning in the late 60s. And then it goes on into the 70s and gets worse and worse well into the early 1990s. So so again, I don't, I don't think it's... Um, it's something that's really a theoretical. It's something that can be shown factually. What, what Thomas said about this is, is that the real, uh, and this gets to your point about this, your, your leave us alone point. The, 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 what, what the civil rights movement did that was most valuable was to get the government off the backs of black people, particularly in the South with respect to the Jim Crow laws. Uh, that was the great achievement of the civil rights movement in busting Jim Crow. To the extent that the government has tried to play a positive role, affirmative <laughs> right. action and quotas and so on, it's, 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 it's had a, a deleterious effect. You, you can chart the rise of the welfare state with the rise of fatherless homes in the black community. Um, so, so, uh, so yes, the, the leave us alone strategy, uh, I think uh, was the better strategy. And there were blacks, you know, at the time, who said so? That's one of uh, you know. That's your 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 Frederick Douglasses and your Booker T. Washingtons. That was that was their attitude. So, with regard to no community, is it probably as true as it is with regard to Black Americans? Uh, uh, Ronald Reagan's famous statement: "The government is not the solution; it's the problem." Yeah. Yes, I, I think so, and that was sort of. Uh, how you know Tom Thomas Sowell started out as a Marxist. He thought he started out thinking that the government did have a, a positive role to play. And through his twenties, he remained a Marxist even after studying economics under Milton Friedman at the University of Chicago. Sowell was still a Marxist, and he says that what changed his mind was working in the government in the Department of Labor one summer. Uh, and what he saw was that uh, the government was not always a benevolent force and that it could be a quite harmful force, particularly when it comes to uh, low-income minority groups. And in his case, it came after a study of minimum wage laws and what they were doing in terms of their effects on employment. You mentioned uh, studying under Milton Friedman. Did Milton Friedman have a big impact on him? Yes, um, in in several ways. Um, uh, Milton Friedman... uh, I, I think I think one of the bigger impacts that, that Milton Friedman had on on Seoul um, 
was on Sol's public intellectualism, um, what he's best known for today. And, and, and what I mean by that is that after Friedman left teaching uh, in the 70s, after he'd won his Nobel Prize and left the University of Chicago, um, he set about writing popular books that could be read and understood by uh, general interest readers, people who were not economists or intellectuals. He did a lot of speaking to such groups uh, on college campuses and, 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 and elsewhere. He felt that uh, the role of a scholar, uh, of, of an intellectual, was not simply to talk to your peers in the academy, but to uh, explain your discipline to uh, people who were not steeped in the discipline. And Sol has very much followed that model. Uh, he's written uh, book after book after book in plain English, plain spoken prose for uh, everyday people. And uh, it's one of the reasons a lot of people were so disappointed when he gave up his column uh, a few years back. Um, uh, I think even after Tom left teaching, he was still teaching through that column. And uh, I, as I said at the time, you know, it's, he, he uh, was, was, was the best professor a lot of people had, even if they never went, went to college. And I think Sowell's public intellectualism to, to some extent was modeled on what Friedman had done. Friedman was a mentor of his. Had he studied under a persuasive left-wing economist, do you think he would have turned out differently? I don't, um, no, probably not. Uh, Sowell's very much his own man. Uh, he, he wasn't indoctrinated by, um, by Friedman or Stigler. George Stigler was another Nobel prize-winning economist that Sowell studied under at, um, at Chicago. He, he studied under uh, Gary Becker at, when he was at Columbia working on his master's and Becker was there teaching. Um, uh, but no, I mean, and Friedman has pointed this out. Sowell is his own man. He, as I said, even after studying under Friedman, he was still a Marxist. Uh, Sowell someone who's had to figure this stuff out for himself. And I don't think um, uh, a, a, a professor would have would have changed his mind. Uh, he's 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 been very independent minded for a very very long time. Uh, I I know that. <laughs> that <is> very <laughs> clear to say. What was his first big hit? Um, his uh, his book, first big book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would say probably Ethnic America, which came out in I want to say 1981. Um, was was a very big hit. It was it got a it got a tremendous amount of coverage, um, sold a lot of copies, and um, it's a book about uh, you know different ethnic groups that uh, have come to the U.S. He traces their history, and um, and he's also talking in there about the importance of culture, in in a group's mm -hmm. upward mobility, and and how if you have uh, what economists call the right human capital. If you've developed the human capital, the right attitudes and skills and habits and behaviors uh, that are conducive to, to economic advancement, um, uh, you're going to be okay, even if larger society uh, discriminates against you. And you can see examples of this, not only here in the U.S. when it comes to groups like Japanese, um, but you can see it in other countries, the uh, ethnic Chinese in Southeast Asia or Jews in, in Eastern Europe and so forth. If you have that human capital, even if you are banned from you know, certain schools or certain occupations, uh, these groups that have that, uh, that human capital seem to be able to rise nevertheless. In my understanding, the moment you say values determine behavior, you are no longer on the left. <laughs> Is that fair um, to say? 
Yeah, uh, I think that's a pretty fair statement. And, and that, that I, I know that book. That, that's, that's, that I didn't realize that that was his first big one. When did Basic Economics come out? The first edition of Basic Economics? Um, wow, I want to say around 2000. Oh, that late. Oh, 20 years I, I, later. I could be oh. wrong, but I, I want to say it, it's, it's, okay. it's something like the fifth edition now. But I want to say around 2000. I, don't quote me on that. But no, I, that's I, fine. I say. So I was just curious. My In my brain, basic economics, because of the title, yeah. <laughs> basic, I thought that was one of the first that ever came well, out. Well, his, his first book that he ever wrote was an economics textbook. Uh-huh. Okay. I, it, wasn't a hit. it was a traditional economics textbook. Right, and graphs. Basic economics is an economics textbook. Its beauty is that it has no charts and graphs in it. And Thomas said it was much, much more difficult to write than, than the first one he wrote. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You'll love this. When I had him on for Basic Economics, which I think could be the dullest title of any book that I've ever been <laughs> the author of, I actually said to him on my radio show, Tom, you really should have consulted with me. I'm good at titles. Like, let's admit, Tom Sowell's Guide to Bikinis would have done much better and he laughed so hard <laughs> that I knew I was with a real person. <laughs> he just well, guffawed. <laughs> it's his best-selling book. It's, basic right. Economics is his best-selling oh, really? book. It's Maybe I'm wrong. Than anything else he's ever written. It's been translated into seven or eight different languages. So uh-huh. he might make an argument for the title. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All right, made ethnic bikinis. And then we so we got to get bikini into one of his titles. But I, I love joking around with him, and he laughs so easily. Yeah. I don't know if people know that. I'm sure you, you encountered that. Yes, yes. And, and he's so proud of his photography. He uh, <laughs> he makes sure that I see some of his. He's good. He he, you know, oh, he's he, very good. Yeah, he's yes. Very good. Yeah. I I don't blame him. So, what is his? If, to the extent that we're free to speak about it, what's his personal life like? Married, children. What's his story? Well, this is mostly an intellectual biography. I, I talk about um, uh, I, I talk about some a- aspects of his personal life. And, and he's written uh, about his personal life um, in his columns over the years. And in a, in a, in a couple books, he's gotten into, uh, into it. He wrote a, a semi-biographical book called Black Education, Myths and Tragedies, back in the early 70s, where he talked about his, his upbringing. And, um, uh, and he wrote a, a memoir called The Personal Odyssey, which came out in the late, late 1990s, uh, I believe. And... Um, uh, He's, he's, he's married. He has a couple kids. Uh, he, he, he's written uh, more extensively about one of his children, uh, his son, who was a late talker in life. And um, uh, after his son graduated from college, Tom wrote a column about how late he had started to talk and how worried his parents had been at the time. And um, this, this produced a flood of, of letters from other parents who had gone through something similar. And the, the volume of mail was so great 
that uh, Tom uh, decided to write a book called Late Talking Children. And, um, uh, uh, and he, he couldn't find a lot of books out there about uh, these kinds of kids. They're, they tend to be male. They tend to be very musically oriented. They have great memories. Uh, there's, there's not uh, a lot else that is wrong with them other than that they, they just start talking much later than most kids do. Uh, but it is a phenomenon. And, uh, and he wrote about it. And he actually wrote two books about the topic. And, and, and so uh, he has written, written about his son. To be personal on my end for a moment, uh, I didn't speak till past three. My grandfather was sure I was retarded. He told my parents that. <laughs> In those days, you could use that term. Yeah. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and <clears throat> uh, my, my argument has always been that why would I talk? I, I, you know, I started talking when I could charge for it. So there was no, there was no, there was nothing <laughs> you, in it for me. made up for lost time. <laughs> yes, exactly right. But, but I, I did not know he wrote that book. Uh, I know someone who has a, a boy and she's very worried. He, he's almost two and I'm going to give her that book. I, I, I hope it's, well, I'm sure I can get it even if it's not in print, but that is so typical of Tom soul yeah. to do something on an issue has nothing to do with economics. And so he, as you pointed out, well, you used the great term uh, of his just, there, there are no boundaries to his thinking. Yeah. Yeah. He, 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 he also, you have the sense he loves life. <laughs> yes. Right? Well, he, I, I hope so, because he's going to be uh, 91 this year. So I hope he's enjoying it. He's, got a, he's had a very long one. <laughs> Good. I, I hope he has many more. That, that's the, that's the case. So, what if there's such a thing? Do you, if you could recommend one book to start people off of Tom Soul, what would you recommend? Well, he put out a book called The Thomas Soul Reader. Um, I, I want to say back in the mid two thousands, uh, but it might have been a little later. Um, and it's a, kind of a sampling of of, of uh, chapters from books he's written as well as columns on various topics, politics, race, culture, economics, excuse me, and so forth. Uh, and that might be um, a good way to start. If you wanna go a little deeper, however, um, uh, the book of, of, of which Tom is proudest is called A, a Conflict of Visions. Mm. It's a book that came out in the mid 80s, 1987, I believe. And it's it's a really a book about political philosophy. And, and Tom is tracing the origins of a lot of our ideological disputes uh, about justice and equality and, 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 and human nature. And, and he traces them back hundreds of years um, and to people like Rousseau and William Godwin and, and, and folks like that. And, and what he's really describing there are, are these two visions of human nature. He calls them the constrained vision and the unconstrained vision, or sometimes he calls the constrained vision the tragic vision and the unconstrained vision the utopian vision. And then in the constrained vision, there's, there's a sense that uh, 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 there are problems we want to solve, but are unlikely to solve. Uh, hunger, uh, war, crime, uh, racism, and so forth. And, and, and because we can't solve these problems, what we need to do is to put in place institutions and, and processes that help us deal with problems we can't solve. So while we all might want world peace, we're probably not going to get it. So you need a defense department. Uh, we may want to end uh, racism and crime and so forth, but we're probably 
probably not going to happen. So you need courts of law and a judiciary to adjudicate disputes and, and so forth. And, and so you have one, one, one view that comes from that perspective. And the other vision, this utopian vision or unconstrained vision, essentially says that, no, man is essentially perfectible. If we just uh, uh, ration our way and, 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 and rationalize or have the willpower, we can solve all of these problems and there'll be no trade-offs. And, and Thomas said that, that, that these, these two uh, visions of, of humanity, of, of, of human nature, are really what it would have been driving uh, our various disputes for, for hundreds of years. And he traces their origins. And the reason I think that's a, a book that will help you get inside of Soul's head is because no matter what he's writing about, whether it's a racial issue, a cultural issue, an economic issue, he's really operating in this framework of a constrained vision point of view versus an unconstrained vision point of view. And that book really, really lays it out. It's, it, it cannot be stated how important that is. The great evils uh, of the 20th century, the bloodiest recorded century we know of, uh, emanate from utopian uh, communism, which killed the most people, way more than Nazism, only because the Nazis didn't have as long a time to do it. But uh, it's completely based on a utopian or unconstrained vision of, of, what, is, of what is possible. And, and we're seeing that happen in the U.S. today. A country free of racism. What does that even mean? You know, I'm a Jew. Do I expect a country free of anti-Semitism? The idea is preposterous to me. Yeah. There will always be anti-Semites. The question is whether your society is anti-Semitic, not whether there are anti-Semites. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I, it, it's their children. It's it, one could almost say it's an adult vision versus a child's vision, <laughs> right? I mean, isn't that a fair way of putting it? Well, it it it, it it is in the, in, the, in the sense that the unconstrained view is more of an aesthetic, as, as someone I interviewed for the book explained it. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a preference for how the world should be, and it can be completely divorced from any reality. I mean, they never the answer the question, can you do this? Uh, is it possible? And at what cost is it possible? Because on this utopian view, there are no trade-offs. There are no costs. Uh, right. Everybody right. can have everything. They're, they're also coming at it, as Thomas explained, uh, there's, there's a view, and, and Tom has written volumes about this, literally, this view that um, human capital is distributed evenly among groups, and, and therefore we should see equal outcomes, or at least proportionate outcomes, in things like income or education or, and, and, and all kinds of uh, facets of our lives. But people who have actually studied societies down through history have never found the sameness in outcomes that is held up today as a norm. The norm is, is, is disparate outcomes, uh, uh, not uh, uh, proportionate outcomes among groups and so forth. Even, even in countries that, that are you know, ethnically and racially homogenous, you do not find uh, equal outcomes. Uh, and the idea that you'd find them in America, a place where people have come from so many different places, geographies with so many different histories and in terms of uh, things they, 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 they focus on and, and, and prioritize, that the, you put them all together in America and get some sort of sameness in outcomes is just, uh, uh, just off the mark to begin with. The whole premise is off the mark. And yet today we have people out there who hold up this view of proportionate outcomes as the norm. And then where they don't see it, 
they assume something nefarious must be going on. And, and, and again, it's the progressives who are largely driving this view. And as Thomas pointed out, they've been doing this for a long time. You go back 100 years ago and you had the progressives telling us that uh, genetics determined uh, outcomes and, and were responsible for the disparities in outcomes among groups. And of course, you get to eugenics through that thinking. Uh, you fast forward 100 years and now it's discrimination is the sole uh, uh, decider of, of uh, you know, the, the, the sole blame for disparate outcomes that we have today. Um, uh, once again, they have seized on a cause and made it the cause. And, 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 they, and they're wrong once again. But that, that is the, the, the type of thinking that, that we're dealing with. And as Thomas pointed out, that's a type of thinking that has a long, long history. There's one area that they, that at least not yet, have they infected with the idea of, uh, of equitable outcomes, and that's sports. It doesn't seem to bother them uh, at this point, the disproportionate number of blacks in the NBA or disproportionate number of whites in hockey. So yeah, I, I, I think that um, uh, they're very good at compartmentalizing certain things, and particularly if something disrupts that narrative that I spoke about earlier. So today, again, using discrimination as, as, uh, as the, the sole factor, the sole explainer of, of disparate outcomes, they always run into problems whenever you include Asians in the equation. I mean, if you, you want to talk about bank loans and, and, and whites getting approved for loans at higher rates than, than blacks, well, Asians get approved at higher rates than whites. You, or you talk about school discipline uh, uh, where, where black boys are, are, are uh, you know, suspended or expelled at higher rates than whites. Well, Asians, uh, whites are, are, are expelled and suspended at higher rates than Asians. When, whenever, so, they, so they just stop, they, they don't talk about that. <laughs> they, just, they, they, they read the data uh, to the point where they can make, make whatever point they're trying to make, and then they stop and they ignore uh, 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 anything that, that sort of interferes, interferes with, with that narrative. So um, uh, I think that's uh, what you see going on here with, with the uh, with the sports you were, you were you were just talking about. So let me pose a challenge to you, and I and I would to Tom as well if 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 he were on with us right now. There seems to be one arena which is largely ignored by uh, by people that I so admire, and that is the role of of the church and religion in people's lives. Uh, we. We who are on the conservative side and, and black conservatives in particular will emphasize how the government, of course, as you pointed out so eloquently, doesn't help, in fact, hurts, and, and how much government policy has hurt black life. But the, uh, the out-of-wedlock birth rate of whites has, has gone up tremendously, and I see it as directly correlated with... Uh, with religious identification and church attendance. As, as that's gone down, uh, out of wedlock birth rates have gone up. Do you see a role for this in, in the problems that face black life generally? I, I do. Um, uh, it's not something uh, that I've come across in, in Soul's research other than um, when he writes about uh, Decision making, and the various institutions in society that um, 
that groups count on to help them make decisions, feedback loops of information and so forth. Uh, the religion and the, and the church is certainly one of those, those areas. And so to the extent that um, you see less church attendance, um, it's gonna have a negative, a negative impact. Um, I, I would also point to the role that the church uh, or religion has played uh, in helping other uh, ethnic minority groups rise. And I can think of the Irish in particular. Uh, who who came here, um, you know, from a rural country, very poor, um, and were very slow to rise uh, economically in America. Um, the Catholic Church had a big role in turning that around, um, uh, helping uh, Irish immigrants assimilate, setting up schools, setting up hospitals, and so forth. So we do have an example of, of how central a role uh, the church can play. Um, and there are still church churches, uh, black churches today, uh, that are playing a similar role. The, I mean, the black church is still one of the um, uh, few functioning institutions in some of these poor black communities. And and I think they, you know, they they have their work cut out. Uh, I, I've I've talked to some uh, ministers uh, about this in the past, and and one of the problems they they point out to me is that um, uh, it's the women who show up in the pews, but it's the men they're trying to reach. And and that's part of the the challenge. Yeah, but so I, I thought that was worth noting. So on a, on a very difficult uh, subject, uh, you, you listed these names of of black quote unquote thinkers that are extremely popular: Ibram X. Kendi and Tanahisi Coates, and so on. Whenever I've read them. I've actually almost wept when I compare them to Tom Sowell, or for that matter, to you, to be perfectly honest. There's no intellectual rigor. They're, they're just outbursts with claims made with, with no bases. How do you account for them? Is it simply that the, the establishment media agree with them and that's, that's the whole issue? It's a large part of the issue. I don't know if it's if it's the whole issue, but they certainly do have uh, the media on their side, and and not just the media. Um, Dennis, you you know when I mentioned earlier that that Sol had been canceled, um, you know he was he was an academic, and you you think about not just who controls the media, you know, ideologically, but who controls uh, the academy, um, who who's in charge of the committees that hands out awards and prizes in intellectual circles. These are all left liberal groups, all left liberal intellectuals, and they have been able to um, accommodate uh, the intellectuals that they want to and, and sort of uh, cancel the, the ones that, that they don't. Um, so, so yes, that, is, that has played a large role. You know, one of the questions that, that Sol would often get asked um, during interviews, and I watched hundreds of hours of interviews with him, uh, and, and research for the book is he'd often be asked, um, how does it feel to be so out of step with other blacks um, in, in your in your views? And he would always correct the interviewer and say, um, you don't mean I'm out of step with other blacks. You mean I'm other, out of step with other black elites. And he said, and he would say, you know, black elites are no more representative of black people than white elites are of white people. And, 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 you, and you, you can't conflate conflate the two. And, and so, um, you know, you, you talk about an issue like, uh, you know, voter ID laws or, or, or canceling the police, uh, or I'm sorry, the uh, defunding the police. Um, these, these are views, uh, 
you know, that where, where the black elites, the ones you, you, you we were just discussing and uh, the ones you in the media, uh, their views are not held by uh, the, the black community, the people who live in these neighborhoods and so forth. Uh, voter ID laws uh, are supported by a majority of blacks. Right. Uh, most most people who live in these black communities want more police. Or school choice. <laughs> and so, and so uh, oftentimes the media uh, is guilty of running to these black elites and accepting their, their opinion as the opinion of black people. And, th- and this is a, this is by no means a new, a new phenomenon. You can go back to say, say the busing wars of the seventies and eighties, where you had groups like the NAACP supporting busing when polls showed that most blacks did not support uh, busing. Um, and, oh, yeah. and so this is a, this is a very old phenomenon. And as I mentioned, school choice. I mean, yes. that, 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 another good example. That's yeah. huge. But, but yeah. so okay. So why do why what is if this is true? Why do blacks keep voting Democrat? <laughs> um, well, it's 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 not a uh, it's not a phenomenon. I think unique unique to blacks. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, uh, in, in, in 2020, there was a referendum, uh, Prop 16 out in California, that would have uh, reinstated uh, uh, racial preferences uh, in college admissions, something that California voters had, had uh, rejected uh, back in the 1990s. This was an effort to, to, to put them back in place. Um, uh, Asian uh, Americans were, were part of the group that uh, helped defeat this proposition. It right, but they vote Democrat too. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, they voted overwhelmingly right. for Joe Biden. And, right. and, and you can You're look right. at the the, 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 the districts in, in California that are heavily Asian, and you see this disparity against uh, Prop 16 for Joe Biden. So, so blacks aren't the only group that that no. that that does this. There there are other issues that um, right. Well, let me tell you about. Well, and, and I will also add this. I think that um, part of the problem is also the lack of Republican outreach to blacks. Hmm. Um, there are some exceptions, but they remain uh, largely uh, exceptions. This is a vote that um, that Republicans largely concede to the Democratic Party. Republicans typically do not go into these neighborhoods. Uh, they don't go into the barber shops. They don't go into the community centers. They don't go into the churches. They're not advertising on black radio or uh, black television programs and social media sites. You have to go get this vote. Um, and, and what that enables the Democrats to do is to paint the Republican opponent as a monster. And, and, and there's no pushback. So, um, so I, I think if, if Republicans want more black support, um, I, I think they're going to have to make more of an effort to go to go uh, ask for it. That's extremely significant. When I I remember when uh, I would hear about a Republican nomin- nominee for president who was be would be invited to an NAACP convention or a banquet and not go, and I thought, what are you nuts? You you have a chance to get such exposure in the black community, and you're rejecting it. I, I, well, to well day, I, I, I wouldn't. Day. I wouldn't go through the civil rights uh, establishment to get to. In other words, the, the the black folks at an NAACP 
uh, conference are probably lost to the Republican Party. They probably have a generation Agreed. but but your the NAACP but black radio and seriously. I'd go around them. I'd go to the black colleges. I'd go to the barbershops. I'd go to the community centers. I would not go through the traditional right. uh, civil rights okay. uh, leadership. I, I hear you and I agree with you. My thought was, but at the very least, segments of your talk will be played on black radio. I mean, it, 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 I agree not to rely on the NAACP, uh, it's, which is a lost group, I think, uh, for, idealistically. But but I, I do believe anyway. It doesn't matter. We agree. Uh, it would be great if they did sh- if they showed up. Did Donald Trump try this at least by saying, "What do you have to lose?" If, if you consider that effective black outrage, <laughs> <laughs> I um, uh, maybe okay. That's uh, fair. That's fair. <laughs> but um, I understand. Uh, I, I I can think of more effective effective uh, ways. Of arguments, arguing. arguments, right. Although there was truth to that, I mean, look, will it happen again in in twenty twenty two with all the crime rise, the violent crime overwhelmingly directed against blacks by blacks? Will will blacks still vote Democrat in in their cities, given these are the defund police crowd? Well, again, I think it's going to depend on on whether the Republican nominee goes and looks for these votes and, and courts these voters. Uh, it, that that's that's what it's, it's going to come down to: is, is the Republican uh, nominee going to go into these communities and, and ask for this vote? I think, you know, the real story of, of blacks under Donald Trump is is how well things were going mm-hmm. um, in terms of employment, in terms of uh, poverty. In terms of income, wage growth, uh, blacks uh, were doing tremendously in the pre-COVID economy under Donald Trump. So it's it's clear that that many of the policies he supported uh, were were policies that could help blacks advance in this country. And and I think that the you know the next Republican nominee ought to go remind uh, black people of that in person in their communities. (laughs) I think it's important to show up. How is a black Republican regarded uh, in in mainstream black life? Um, An oddity, I think, very much still an oddity. Mm. Um, It's, it's, um, um, and that's despite the fact that uh, I think black Americans in the main hold uh, quite conservative views on any number of issues. I mean, you mentioned school choice uh, as one of them, but uh, the Republican label is still uh, a taint. Yes, very much so. So that's been effective. It's it, look, it's been effective. You know, you mentioned uh, uh, the the issue of it's not just black. So again, I, as I mentioned, I'm a Jew, and uh, my all you know all my my relatives are Jewish, and I, um, and nearly all of them are Democrats. Thank God, a hundred times. It's not true for my sons and my wife. <laughs> which is which is what is most important. But anyway, I tell my relatives whom I love, I said, I have a great line I think you would love. I, I, I say to them, why don't you preach what you practice? <laughs> they yeah. live utterly conservative lives. Yeah, yeah. Well, Sol has argued for, for years that, um, that one way for the Republican Party, uh, one one inroad that that they would have if they took advantage of it is education 
um, and 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 uh, given what is what is taken place with schooling under COVID and and how the teachers unions have behaved and how blatantly they have shown themselves to be far more interested in uh, leveraging the crisis for the, for, the, for the benefit of their members than they are uh, interested in, in helping kids and families. Um, I think there's a huge opportunity here for Republicans to, to really uh, run, on, run on that issue and, 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 and keep that foremost in voters' minds that um, this Democratic Party is in bed with these teachers' unions. Remember what the unions put you through, it put your family right. through, your kids could, couldn't go to school, you couldn't go to work. Uh, do you want to continue to support a party that um, that wants the unions to have this much control, not only over over our schools, but by extension over our lives? And I think that is a, a message that Republicans would be wise to run on uh, in, in both in the midterm uh, elections and in the next presidential election. We're uh, we're coming uh, to to the end. Unfortunately, this has really been wonderful talking to you. I'd like your analysis of, of the white progressive, the white leftist. Uh, the country is racist. Every white is a racist. Whites are fragile. It's generally argued that this comes from some, uh, uh, in my opinion, pathological guilt. Uh, I see it as, as more nefarious as in many cases, just using blacks as a vehicle to power, like the communists in the Soviet Union used workers. They didn't really care about workers. They used them to gain power. Uh, I'd love your reaction. I, I, I think that the progressive left has given up on black people, and particularly uh, black kids. I'm, I'm very, very disturbed by this movement against testing. Um, mm. Uh, standards of any kind. It's, it's, it's telling me that they don't believe that black people can be held That's up right. to any standards and therefore the standards must be eliminated, which is odd because, you know, if you, all, all the test is doing is showing us um, where the kid is. You eliminate the test. It doesn't mean the kid isn't still in that position. Mm. And if you want to help someone, they need to know where they are, uh, not where you hope they are, they need to know where they actually are. And, and when you eliminate that test, all you're doing is obscuring where they are. And that's not how you help someone. I mean, one of Soul's sayings is that you know, when, when you want to uh, help someone, you, you, you tell them uh, what they need to hear. When you want to help yourself, you tell them what they want to hear. And I, and I think your, your analysis is right here. These are progressives who are really more interested in helping themselves. But I think... Uh, uh, the other problem is that they, they've, they've really decided that, that these kids will never measure up, that blacks in general will never measure up. This whole effort to, to decriminalize things, uh, make things that are illegal no longer uh, illegal, to accommodate uh, disparities in behavior, to me says the, the, these people, these black people have no agency. They're really incapable of ever doing X, Y, and Z. Therefore, we must eliminate these standards. Again, ignoring this entire history, black history, uh, pre-1960s black history, when things were going in a much different different direction in all kinds of measures, from crime and schooling to uh, to, to incomes and employment. Um, so yeah, it's it's uh, it's very disturbing to me. Uh, I, I it's uh, but you know it's where we are today. 
I, uh, I, I, dis- I, I agree with you, the, uh, the, this despair. You know, the New York Times has come out against blind auditions for the New York Philharmonic. <laughs> they actually want musicians chosen on the basis of, quote, gender and race, and not who plays the oboe best behind a curtain. So so all it does is it cheapens the achievement of the black oboist. Are you great or did they choose you for your color? Well, listen, uh, Jason Riley, you do magnificent work. Uh, Your biography uh, of of Thomas Sowell is is extremely significant about one of the greatest thinkers, as I said, of the 20th century and the 21st century. So thank you for all your work. Keep writing, uh, keep lecturing, and uh, I look forward to being with you again. Thank you, Dennis. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. You might be interested in C-SPAN's newest podcast, Book Notes Plus. Brian Lamb has wide-ranging conversations with authors and historians. The 30-minute podcast is available every Tuesday. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.